Welcome to Face the Jury, a podcast focused on the issues of medical malpractice, what it is, how to spot it, and most importantly, how to protect you and your family from becoming victims. I am your host, Lloyd Bell, and thank you for joining us today. Today, we are talking about a very interesting topic, the issue of medical malpractice claims in the military. As everybody is aware, we have a very large military with military hospitals around the world. And for many years, service members, uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, could not bring a claim if they became a victim of medical malpractice. The law in this area is known as what's called the Ferries Doctrine, F-E-R-E-S. And this is a doctrine that was arrived at by the U.S. Supreme Court, which basically said soldiers, sailors, and folks who serve in the military do not have the right to bring a lawsuit against the government for negligence that happens during their service. So this was the law in the United States uh, for many decades until very recently. And that all changed when attorney Natalie Kawam out of Tampa, Florida, took on the case of Sergeant First Class Richard Stasekel. Natalie decided not to fight the law. She decided to change the law. So she advocated and lobbied Congress and made her ways up and down the halls of Congress, advocating on behalf of, of Sergeant Stasekel. And she got bipartisan support to change the law and pass what's known as the Stasekel Military Medical Accountability Act. I'm very pleased to have Natalie on our podcast this morning. I'm also joined by Matt Grant, who is a reporter in Charlotte, who has been following this story and promoting it and helping the public become aware of this important issue. Matt, welcome. Natalie, thank you for being here with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You bet. I wanted to say a few words about Natalie, and then I want to ask her how she got on this journey and how she managed to accomplish something that very few people can do in America nowadays, which is to achieve bipartisanship agreement between the left and the right, the Republicans and the Democrats, to accomplish something very special and very positive in America. A few words about Natalie before I turn it over to her. Natalie Quam is a lawyer from Tampa, Florida. She's a graduate of Georgetown University Law Center. She is the founder of the Whistleblower Law Firm in Tampa, and she represents employees from all the federal agencies you can think of, the Department of Defense, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, of course, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and and many others. Natalie is a trial lawyer with a federal law background. She practices exclusively, I believe, in federal courts, and she is first and foremost a veterans advocate. Again, welcome, Natalie. And if you could just please tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us how you got on this journey with Sergeant First Class School. Sure. Thank you so much again for having me. You know, I got on this journey because a few years ago, a lot of my friends and colleagues were in the military and I was always highly grateful of what they've done and putting themselves out there to protect our country. And when it came to deciding where to spend my pro bono time, a lot of colleagues of mine, they put their time in, their pro bono time in for representing criminals, defending criminals. And I just felt like there was this lack of representation for our military and our veterans. It's just, it seemed like it was not sexy enough. It was, it was really cool and fun and sexy to represent a criminal, but nobody ever really wanted to step up and help these veterans and 
are active duty members. It started a few years ago. One of the bigger cases I decided to do pro bono was a case with a Marine who was suicidal, three IEDs, inpatient at the TBI clinic, traumatic brain injury clinic at Tampa VA. A doctor pulled him in on a Friday evening, brings him in my office and says, you need to help him. It was like 7 p.m. on Friday. And I'm like, why did you pick me? Uh, and he said, Natalie, you're the only person that can help this kid. You need to, you need to take this case. So of course I said, sure. Didn't know what I was in for. I contacted this, the secretary's office's Secretary of Defense office, front office, started going through this issue with him. And they're like, oh, no one ever won this kind of case. You don't want to do this case. You'll be doing this for years. It was one of those cases where the veteran, or at the time, the Marine, went through the medical board. And he was 100% disabled under the VA, but the DOD only gave him a 10% disability and then took it away. And then they said that he had to stay as active duty. He was not going to be allowed to discharge or retire Long story short, if you look at his medication, you don't want to give this guy a gun. And this is during a Sandy Hook matter that was going on. And I thought, he's a a Sergeant Gunnery guy, or Gunnery Sergeant. And so I thought, they want him to stay active duty when he's this messed up? Like, are they crazy? So I took it personally because I thought, God, we see what's happening. If somebody says enough is enough, if somebody's just broken, you do not force him to continue, especially when his mental state is not there. So he was literally- What happened to him? Just a few IEDs, PTSD, TBI. Um, and so I mean, when you're inpatient for six months in the TBI clinic, you do not need to be around any guns, let alone going back to active duty. So they said that because he was still married, that he wasn't disabled and he can still continue his his career. And I thought, still married? Like, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, you wouldn't believe this case. And I couldn't believe it. That's why I really wanted to help this kid. Uh, here he was using his chalk, his kid's chalk in the garage, trying to kill himself, saying, I'm sorry, I failed you guys. I mean, it was terrible. So I took it upon myself. I called everybody and everything, basically threatened the life out of everyone, saying, if this guy kills himself, you know, the blood's on your hands for letting him go through this. And he served like 17 and a half years. So long story short, this case took a very long time. And everyone told me I was going to lose. Everyone told me there's no one, no one's ever won one of these cases. And we won. I mean, we won. And and it was a, a long appeal. It was a long thing happening. But I was really, really, I get close to my clients. I was really, really committed to this. And I wanted to make sure that he was okay. And everything happened. Everything worked out for him. And then when Richard Stasel's matter happened, I think his mom had read this case. And this was the one I'm referring to is Gunnery Sergeant Peter Nolan, Richard's mom, had read Kitty Stasekul, had read, uh, I guess, about this case in the paper. And she said, I think someone else also recommended me instead, you know, this she takes these impossible cases. It's not like I want an impossible case. You don't want that reputation as a trial lawyer that you take the impossible case. Right. It's weird because every time someone calls me with an easy case, I'm like, why are you calling me? I don't do easy cases. <laughs> Well, Natalie, let me make one quick point because you talked about how you had helped one service member and it was pro bono. It was clearly a, you became very passionate, very close and, and believed very deeply in the family. And that passion ended up with a positive result. So now that result gets publicized. And now, courtesy of the internet and podcasting and the world we live in, somebody hears about that successful outcome. It sounds like that's the connection. They heard about you being successful and quote, the impossible case, and reached out to you to help in another impossible case, a, a really impossible case at the time. And that was Richard Stasekul's. So tell us how you decided to take on a second impossible case. I get an email, and I, I get an email from his mom. It's like two in the morning. I wake up every two hours to read my emails and stuff because I get so many of them, and I really am close to my 
my cases. And so I read this email saying my son is dying. Nobody will help. This whole email, it was just tragic. And I immediately contacted one of the employees in my firm and said, set up a call in the morning for this matter. I talked to the mom and I was just dumbfounded. And I first said, well, wait, my brother-in-law is a cancer surgeon. So I, I thought to myself, well, wait a second, they missed they saw it. They didn't tell him. And they saw what? what t- tell us what you mean. They saw the tumor in his lung. He, so, okay, it's January 2017. He goes in for his annual routine checkup and he has to be cleared for diving school because he's special forces. And they do the CT scan and they said everything's good. Not only do they say everything's good, they clear him for diving school. What happens to be there was a mass in his lung on his right nubule and CT scan. You could see it. I mean, it's kind of obvious, actually. But they didn't tell him that, and they didn't give him a scan result. They just said, you're good, you're cleared, and they cleared him for diving school. A few months later, he's coughing up blood. He said, now I was coughing up like a vase a day of blood. Something's wrong. I feel like I'm drowning when I'm sleeping. And he, he says, I think I'm being, I feel like I'm being waterboarded. Well, he is because the blood is going through his, his mouth and, and his lungs. And they missed the diagnosis. So, they, so he doesn't know he's got cancer. Correct. And then time goes by and the cancer eats him up. Sure. And so at that second time when he goes in, they did another CT scan. And they told him he's fine. He has walking pneumonia. Now, by the way, if you look at the scans, the first time he was diagnosed, there was that mass. It could have been removed. It never attached. The second time he goes into a CT scan, when they told me he has walking pneumonia, it's now attaching. And so they tell me he's fine. He's good. You got walking pneumonia. Several months later, everything goes downhill. He's passing out and he goes to Duke Hospital and he lights up like a Christmas tree. And they're like, you have stage four cancer or something. Uh. So... I get this phone call and I'm like, well, why are you calling me? Because I mean, I'm a healthcare lawyer by trade. This is a slam dunk malpractice case. Well, they said, well, they said um, nobody will take this case. I go, what do you mean no one's going to take this case? So I, I contacted some of my colleagues that are malpractice lawyers and one of them I in town, um, I never met this guy, but I sent him an email and I just told him the background. And he goes, oh yeah, too bad this poor guy. He has no options. He's barred by the Ferris Doctrine. I'm like, oh, I remember that word, Ferris Doctrine. I didn't remember. And so I go, no way, this can't be it. So I'm looking up Ferris and I'm like, no, no, that's during wartime. That's during. And then I start looking at all the history, the text and Supreme Court cases. And I interned at the Supreme Court. So I was like, this is crazy. People are misinterpreting this law. Well, let me jump in on something real yeah. quick because we have a lot of listeners who are not lawyers necessarily. And so I want to break it down just a little bit, because what you're talking about is that you evaluated the case and based on the facts of the case, that there was a clear case of of medical malpractice. You had doctors who misinterpreted the imaging, delayed the diagnosis, and this delay was going to cause cause the cancer to spread and to grow and to unfortunately give Sergeant State School a terminal diagnosis. Normally, in every state in the union, there is a option for the family in that situation for Sergeant Stay School to prosecute a case, to file a malpractice lawsuit. But there is an exception. You cannot do that in the military because, and you use the term Ferry's Doctrine. What is the Ferry's Doctrine and why did that prevent Sergeant Stay School from pursuing a malpractice case? The Ferris Doctrine is a 1950s law, a case, uh, actually it's three cases in one, but it's from 1950. And the Supreme Court had this case where a kid was in the barracks, the barracks caught on fire, one of the heat lamps that was defective and caught on fire and killed the Marines. Another case was one of medical malpractice where they left a towel or something in the during the surgery while he was treated during wartime on the battlefield. Look, you know, during wartime in battle, 
things are going to happen that aren't anticipated. You're not going to have all the resources. Basically, when a doctor or a medic is in a battlefield and he's trying to take care of, of a soldier, he's not going to have all the resources. So medical malpractice could happen. So you can't sue for medical malpractice because it's wartime, it's an emergency, and you know this is part of this war. And that, that seems to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. How does that apply to Sergeant State School and why did that prevent him from recovering? What they did was, and conveniently, the DOD decided, well, every time that someone's active duty, no, you can't sue. So they extended this, they, they applied the Ferris Doctrine on matters like Richard Stasekels, where it's not in battle. This was an annual physical routine checkup. And by the way, it wasn't an officer, it was a civilian doctor. So basically they said, no, you're barred by Ferris. And, and so I looked at the case law and I looked at the legislation, the history of Congress, and one of the cases in case law, at the time, Justice Scalia, when he was alive, said, and he and Justice Ginsburg agreed on one issue, and they said, this is an injustice to our military, but if Congress wants to fix this, if Congress wants to clarify that it's not on every case when you're active duty, but when it's only in battlefield, they could do that. Well, several people had tried, I think it was like a hundred different times to change the Ferris Doctrine and have it clarified or or narrowly interpreted and have lost. So when I took on this case and I said to Richard, hey, I want to follow this in court, but no one ever likes to go to court and litigation because that takes years. And we're up against, you know, obviously the DOD and I'm not afraid to, you know, go out against the DOD or or anyone. But what our problem is, you don't, you don't have time on your side because of the stage four. So let's go to Congress and let's make this work. So if you can't argue the law, you change the law, <laughs> essentially, at least in this case. And the funny thing is the guy that I sent that email to, Jack, who was a medical malpractice lawyer, said, now there's good luck. There's only one way to change this. It's either take an act of Congress or an act of God. Good luck. And I said, we'll see about that. And that's really what happened. So I said, we're going to the Hill, you know, let's get ready. Let's go. He goes, have you ever done this before? I go, no, but there's a first for everything. It was really uphill really- battle. Oh, oh let, yeah. let me step in real quick. I want to bring Matt into the conversation because Matt is a reporter in North Carolina, which is where Fort Bragg is located, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And Richard, I understand Sergeant Skaskill was stationed there, living there with his family. First of all, Matt, I want my listenership to know who you are. So tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and tell us how Natalie got on your radar and this case got on your radar and how you proceeded from there. Uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. Natalie's uh, very passionate about this issue, and uh, and I, I cannot uh, overstate how uh, amazing – you have to give her all the credit in the world. You can't overstate what an amazing accomplishment uh, she did and Richard did uh, getting this law passed. It's, it's unbelievable. I've been doing reporting. I started uh, in about 2005 when I graduated college, and – in the last 15 years, I've reported on cases that lawmakers have taken an interest in. When we did this story, there was not only a bill, there was a law that was signed a little over a year later. It's I've never seen it happen. I will probably never see it happen again. It's amazing. And the fact that she was able to bring Republicans, the most conservative Republicans and the liberal Democrats together on this issue, it really speaks to the respect I think that everyone has for our military and that they have for Richard, who is a Purple Heart recipient war hero who did not deserve the treatment that he got. 
And it's just so tragic uh, and heartbreaking what happened to him and his family. But I've worked in a few different states. I've worked in Florida. I've worked in Missouri. Uh, I grew up in Long Island. Um, I worked, uh, my first job was in the Bronx as an assignment manager. I went to grad school at Columbia. And I've been doing a reporting and investigative reporting since about, two, since about 2005. I've won five Emmy Awards. I was nominated for Investigative Reporter of the Year. I won my most recent Emmy just a couple of weeks ago. It was for our coverage of uh, Richard Stayskull. And a few other awards here and there, but the the accomplishment that we did with Richard is probably not probably is the highlight of my career. That's a wonderful story, Matt. And I imagine being in North Carolina in a military community or near a military community at Fort Bragg, and there was a lot of interest in this case. Can you, can you talk to us about um, how you got the case on your uh, sort of on your radar and why you decided to pursue it and and explore the issues. Sure. We're a little bit of a ways from Fort Bragg. We're in Charlotte. But the way that I got interested in this case, and and Natalie may correct my memory, I thought I had remembered meeting Natalie at an investigative reporters conference years ago. I was looking for story ideas, and I thought I remembered Natalie and her law firm, Whistleblower Law Firm. It's like a pretty standout name. And so what I did was I called up her law firm. And I asked to talk to Natalie and I said, you know, I know you do whistleblower cases and those are the kind of stories I'm interested in. If you have uh, anything that uh, intersects with North Carolina, I would be very interested. And Natalie and I got to talking and, and it just so happened that she was right in the middle of Richard's case. And she said, well, actually, we have a pretty big story. Are you interested? And I was uh, immediately as soon as she As soon as she told me what had happened to Richard, I knew it was a big story. And I flew down to Florida and I met Richard and his wife, Megan, and Natalie at their Tampa office. And and we interviewed him right on the spot. Tell us about that, that moment when you met him and you got to hear his story a little bit. What stayed with you? What impressed you? A number of things impressed me about Richard. He's very humble. If you ask him about his service, and I think a lot of service members are like this, but if you ask him about his time in Iraq, he won a Purple Heart, and I almost felt like I had to drag that out of him. He doesn't really like talking about his service. He doesn't even really like talking about himself. For him, it was just he was doing the mission that he was assigned to do. He looks great. You look at him, and he's fit, and he looks healthy, and you would never know that he has stage four cancer just eating away at him and that his time is limited. But he uh, he was on a mission. You know, this was a mission for him to get the law changed and he was going to do whatever it took. And look, I'm sure it wasn't easy to sit down and tell the story of botched medical care and, and for his wife to do it as well with lights, with a camera. What stuck out to me from that interview and still hits me is there was this moment where he got choked up and he said that he feels good and he feels healthy and some days he uh, he pretends that he doesn't have cancer and that's how he goes about his days and just saying that it chokes you up because it was uh it was a really powerful moment and we kept that in our first story and Richard's just an incredible guy he's a hero and he uh he views what he's doing now as as his mission and I know we'll probably talk about this, but the fact that the Department of Defense has delayed 
implementing this law more than a year after it was signed. I know that's got to be frustrating to him and to Natalie. And I know whereas Richard should be devoting all of his time to spending with his two young daughters and with Megan, he's being dragged back into this fight to help his fellow service members. He's got a great champion in Natalie who's proven her, not just her determination, but her ability. It's one thing having the passion. It's one thing having the work ethic, but to be able to have the mental firepower, the intelligence, the social intelligence to navigate all types of personalities in Congress. I turned on the, I was in research for this show. I was watching videos online and and uh, at different points in the story. I watched some of your stories, Matt. I watched some of the interviews with you, Natalie, that some of the New York Times did, for example, and some others. And what struck me is watching Senator Ted Cruz presiding over the Senate for this particular vote, I believe, and announcing that there was 87 of the 100 senators in favor of this bill, crossing party lines, crossing all ideological bents to to see things the way that you advocated them, Natalie, because that's certainly not how people started off. And I'd like you, if you would, Natalie, just to talk to us about the experience of going into these various senators' offices. I mean, I believe Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, a very conservative, outspoken supporter of the former president, not somebody you think would be an advocate for expanding the rights to file medical malpractice lawsuits. So give us a flavor of what that was like, Natalie, for you going into these Senate offices and telling the story of Richard and advocating for him. Well, you know, I'm a really big believer of know your audience. Someone's a vegetarian, don't offer him a steak, you know. When I knew who I was going to be presenting to, I would first of all study how many constituents they had that were active duty and, you know, mention it like, oh, I guess you don't need those 1.5 million votes that you have. Or, you know, with Lindsey Graham, I thought I saw you telling everyone on your commercial that you support a veterans. Do you not support the veterans? And he is a veteran. He was in the Jack, Army Jack for himself. Thank you. You know how much I had. Oh, God. Matt knows. Matt knows. (laughs) Anyway, so I had to do my research and I had to do my brushing up on understanding what their views are and why we would why and how to bring them on our team. So, for example, one of our biggest should have been in opposition would have been Mark Green from Tennessee, Congressman. So he uh, I said this Mark Green guy, he went to West Point. He is a doctor. He's a physician. And so what does that mean? That means all the elements that we have here that we're trying to promote are going to be exactly what he wouldn't want. Why? He's a doctor. It means he's now could be accountable, liable for malpractice if he, because they don't get sued for malpractice. And number two, he's in the military. So you're going against a DOD, which is his, he went to West Point for God's sake. This is his blood. So going into that meeting was probably the only meeting I was actually a little nervous about. Everybody else, Jerry Nadler, everybody, Schumer, everybody, I loved him. It was like everybody was cake. That one I was a little nervous about because this is like me telling a doctor, hey, get ready to be sued. Nobody wants that. So if you're a good doctor, what are you worried about malpractice for? Like me, I'm a good lawyer. I'm not going to worry about malpractice. So I was able to bring him to the table and actually be an advocate for us. And that's when I knew we had it. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Face the Jury. Lots to unpack with Natalie Kawam and Matt Grant. So join us next time for part two of our interview as we continue our conversation on medical malpractice in the military. 